0: A quick note before the show. This episode contains details involving sexual assault and violence against women and children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome. I'm Dr. Ramona Lagia, lead investigator of Make Resilience Matter for Children Exposed to Domestic Violence, Associate Professor of Social Work, and the Factor Inwintash Chair in Children's Mental Health at the University of Toronto. Make Resilience Matter is a research initiative dedicated to promoting resilience for children exposed to domestic or intimate partner violence. This is our second podcast, and we're excited to have Dr. Linda Baker here in the studio with us today. Well, Dr. Linda Baker, for some time I've had this vision of interviewing the leaders in this field about their thoughts on how we promote resilience with children who've been exposed to domestic violence. And one of the first names I thought of was yours. Oh, thank you, Ramona. And I'm really pleased to be here with you today. Well, I clearly remember first seeing you when I was teaching at King's College in London a number of years ago, speaking about violence against women and children and what was then considered a new phenomena of children exposed to domestic violence. And I was taken by your notions of the possible negative effects. You really opened up a new way of thinking And since then, we've even discovered that these kids can also show resilience in the face of this adversity. You've been a pioneer in this area, written a number of groundbreaking books, and you've been able to bring research into the real world of practice, which is our intent today. You are the Learning Director at the Centre for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children at Western University, where you lead the center's Knowledge Translation Exchange Initiatives, And before this, you were the director of the London Family Court Clinic for 10 years, where you dealt with hundreds of cases. You've had an illustrious career, and I'm so honoured to be able to pick your brain on the contemporary issues facing our field today. Welcome.
0: Thank you for that warm introduction, Ramona. And it's always a delight to talk with someone like yourself about resilience and children.
1: So, Linda, I have a few grand tour questions. How do we promote resilience when children are traumatized? How can we even talk about resilience when families are in crisis? So let me start by asking you more specifically, when and how did you first become aware of resilience in your work?
0: That takes me back, Ramona, it really does. You know, there were a number of, I think it was an incremental process but there are a few signposts that really stand out when i look back and i think the first one was i was in my internship at a psychiatric hospital and we all sat down a multidisciplinary team and psychiatrist led with the patient Present began listing all the deficits, disorders, complicated problems that this patient had. And as a young graduate student, I was appalled. I couldn't believe that we were sitting in this room talking about this person uh, without talking about them as a person. Then, a short while after, I had graduated and I was working with a young woman. Eight to be exact, a little girl. And her mother had separated from an abusive partner, and the little girl was home alone. And this ex partner broke in when mom was away at the neighbor's and raped the little girl. And I was asked to work with her because she was having terrible nightmares when the time came that she had to appear in court as a witness. And in those days, there weren't protections, screens, and closed-circuit TV. She would be in the room with this man. And so we did all sorts of what I thought were great interventions, and I knew them from school and my internships, and I was really excited. She went to court, and the wonderful social worker set up an appointment for us to get together to talk about how it went for her. And I couldn't wait to see her and to find out how it went. And she came in. And not only did I want to know if she was okay and how it went, but I also wanted to know which of the techniques that we had worked on was successful. And I would, you know, use that with other children. Well, she came in, she had done well, she was feeling good, she was sleeping again, but she didn't use any of the techniques we had worked on. And I Said, well, well what did you do? What happened? How how were you able to get through this? And she said, Have you ever watched the Care Bears? And I said, Yeah, I know the Care Bears. She says, Well, you know that little bear that says it worries all the time, and he says, I won't be afraid, I won't be afraid, I won't be afraid. She says, well, I got in that cab in the back seat, and I just said quietly in my head, I won't be afraid, I won't be afraid, I won't be afraid. And I never stopped saying it until I had to answer the questions on the witness stand. She didn't call it the witness stand, but in court. And I sat there, and a light came on. Here I was, using tried and true and evidence-based approaches But I'd made a fundamental error. I hadn't stopped to find out what the natural coping, what the natural strengths that this little girl had, and then to work with her to build on that. And you see, she had watched the Care Bears every day after school. So she already, that was something that came easy and didn't need a lot of rehearsal because she kind of lived it with that little Care Bear every day after school. And that was really a game changer for me in terms of realizing that the place we had to start was really looking at natural coping, natural strength, natural resilience
1: pathways. That is such a powerful and moving story. I I can just see this little girl who had developed her own mantra you know, ahead of her time. And um, what you said about how we don't go in often enough for what the natural strengths are, what do kids bring to this before the adversity that we can find out about and then later help them use it or regain it if they've lost it, but build on that. And that's exactly what we're developing our work around here is how do we identify those resilience factors and processes that begin with some of the protective factors and strengths and really use them to build and move kids along this resilient pathway. It's a great story. So Linda, now I'd like to delve more deeply into these issues but I would like to do it in a way that will help our audience recognize where they may find it challenging to put resilience into practice. Can you give a case scenario that our audience might be familiar with or be working with? Um, I can, Ramona.
0: There's one that really comes to mind for me, and it was a family of... A mother and three daughters, they were living in second-stage housing, so they'd been in the shelter for the full time and now were in, as I say, second-stage housing. And they had separated, uh, the mom had separated from her ex-husband. He was the stepfather to the two oldest girls and the biological father to the youngest. And these daughters were in different developmental stages and had really been impacted by the exposure and the traumatic events that they had been exposed to while living within the home where intimate partner violence was.
1: So that's that's a great example because I think our audience members can really relate to this kind of scenario unfolding, um, especially with second-stage housing, with uh, different parents, uh, different types of exposure. So uh, first, if you can, remove the concept of resilience from your mind, just for, just mm-hmm, for a little mm-hmm. bit, and, and describe what a good trauma-informed assessment and intervention plan would entail.
0: Hmm. Well, how the case came to me, Ramona, was that the school and mom we're really worried about two of the young girls, the daughters. So the oldest daughter was 14, 15 and in high school and was not doing well. There was a suspected learning disability. She was missing a lot of classes and she had been telling her mom she was at a girlfriend's but really was at her boyfriend's and was having sleepovers there. And mom was really worried um, for her. The middle daughter was about 9 or 10, and Mom didn't have any worries about her from the perspective that she was doing really well in school. But the teacher noticed that she was really... Invisible in the class and tended to be passive in her peer relationships, so others could just kind of boss her around or ask her to do their work, or just she seemed to not have the teachers' act words were an assertive bone in her body, but she was doing really well, so it wasn't causing any problems in class. And the youngest daughter. She had been referred to by the father as my little princess, and both older sisters had really protected her a lot from incidents of violence and abuse that were happening in the home. But she was all over the place. The school was convinced that she had an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, although she'd never been assessed. She had impulse control. Everybody liked her, but she couldn't sit still and concentrate or focus. And so they judged that she was at least two years behind where you would expect her to be at that time, and she was clingy. And her sisters couldn't get her away from them. She clung to them, she clung to mom, and she clung to the teacher, and it was driving the teacher. Um, It it was very challenging for the teacher. So that's how the referral came. Mom wanted help for her daughters.
1: That's so interesting what you're bringing up in this case example because you have... um You've described a very engaged mom and an observant teacher. Uh, and, and our research, we're finding that those maybe taken for granted roles in people's lives are actually so important and bringing attention to, I guess, I guess you were saying that this girl was doing relatively well on the surface of things and could have easily slipped under the radar. But this attention was brought to her, in spite of all the other things that were happening in the family with her siblings and all the different uh, issues that were arising that needed to be attended to. So Linda, how would you proceed with this family in terms of doing a trauma-informed assessment?
0: Well, one of the keys in terms of trauma-informed assessment, I hope we do that with all assessments, but particularly important with a trauma-informed assessment. And when children and youth have been through what these young people had been through is to establish safety and Mm -hmm. to make sure Mm -hmm. that they're comfortable being alone with me. And so we met as a whole family, and I spent some time just getting to know Mom and the three girls while they were all there with each other. And from there, really made sure they were comfortable on future visits, spending some time, and in that first session, establishing that their mother was supportive of them talking to me about the violence or the fighting, as the girls referred to it, that it happened Mm -hmm. at their home. So I'm not adding to the separations, triangulations that are so often part of families where there's intimate partner violence, but rather I'm modeling a more cohesive and transparent healthy process and then set up sessions with each of the girls but in their home in a private section so everybody else was in another part of the house and we were in the kitchen at the kitchen table, and would spend time. And that was the, the first really important step, was them getting to know me, starting to build rapport and trust, and making sure it was clear everybody understood the purpose, and that most importantly, that
1: their mother was wanting this to happen. So what I'm hearing you say that this is a really collaborative approach, where you're giving the family choice, some control, actually quite a bit of control, which makes complete sense given that they've been so out of control in their home environment, with their family dynamics, and that you're being transparent with them to to really build that safety and trust.
0: That's exactly it, Ramona. And... Often for children, the place that they feel most safe is in their home, but not always. Sometimes they feel more comfortable in a, a center, a children's mental health center, another location. But I think it's really important to check and also to check in with mom. The The second stage of the assessment was starting with mom. So I wanted from her perspective to make sure I understood the traumatic events mm-hmm. or yeah. adversities yeah. that she believed the girls had experienced. And that was really important because then I'm not going in without any background to meet with those um children and young women, the youth, and that provides a background and it gives me some thoughts about questions or prompts. But we try to keep it pretty open-ended, trying to let them tell what they have experienced rather than being too directive for fear that you are, one, making them feel out of control or less control, or that you're guiding in a way that you might miss something really important that you don't even know is there. And what we often ask mothers is after they've chronicled what their children have been through, and that can take a long time when there have been repeated and it's really important not to rush that. And it might take two sessions. And often that becomes very emotional for a mother. And again, pacing that interview, and the despite wanting to gain better understanding quickly, one really has to pace the interview in a way that is supportive of the mother's emotions, and she's maybe having all kinds of memories, um, reminders or triggers of what she went through, because in every one of the events that she's likely to describe, she was being assaulted or abused in that
1: incident. So it's a
0: very emotional uh, experience for mothers.
1: You're describing such an excellent framework. Uh, It's it's really quite detailed. Obviously, you have to have a good level of skill, but so important to do, laying down, setting the stage for the work to come. It really
0: is. And one of the things that we build in that you don't always find it in the literature but we find really helpful is we then ask the mother that we're working with, for each child, what do you think would be the experience, the event, the incident that would have been most distressing, most upsetting to this child or this child? And mothers often become very reflective, but within minutes describe different incidents for each child, but mm-hmm. through the mm-hmm. mother's uh-huh. lens. And that's really important for us because it gives us an idea of what mom's worried about, what she has in her mind in terms of her worry for each child in particular, apart from her general worry. And then when we meet with children, we ask them to talk about the fighting, if that's the term they use, and I find most children do.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And to talk about different experiences that stand out for them. And then again, we ask them after they have done that, again, pacing and being very sensitive, always making sure they've got Play-Doh or Mm -hmm. crayons or pencil crayons or a doodling pad, something that they can be working with, building in breaks, taking a walk and having something to drink and eat, and coming back but ending with which of those situations is the one you're most likely to think about just before you fall asleep or the one when you don't want to be thinking about the fighting that tends to sneak back into your mind, either with a picture in your mind or words or sounds, and to find out. And what we find is almost... I, I don't want to say never, but it's very rare that what, through the mother's lens, was the most salient
1: for a child
0: is what was the most salient experience for that child.
1: Oh, that is so interesting because we often overlook that there are different narratives at play for the different members of the family and how those diverge and how those converge is so important to suss out. I think that's what you're saying, that this is very detailed, focused work that can't be rushed. Exactly,
0: Ramona. And one of the things for that is sometimes, especially when you have a a supportive, worried, caring mom and three children that make good candidates for some kind of family intervention, often that's where people start. And I think that what we often miss is that if we're not really careful, there can be a dominant narrative that becomes the story, but it suppresses a narrative that's much more powerful in an individual family member. And often between siblings, those narratives are so different. And we tend to assume children, experiencing roughly the same violence, and even though they're different personalities, that basically the narrative of the traumatic events will be quite similar, but it's often very different.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, what you're saying also sparks for me this other observation that we're starting to probe in our research is, and I think it's really overlooked, the impact that this violence, or what the kids call fighting, has on the sibling relationships. We don't know much, but in our interviews, we're getting glimmers of this really uh, profound impact on the different sibling relationships. Is that something that you consider in your work?
0: Very much so. We look at it in the perspective of the either prescribed role, That a child has been given by the family or an assumed role. And we look at that very carefully. And children are amazing at identifying their role as well as other roles. They may not use that language. So, for instance, often there's one child, often an older child, in this case, it was definitely the oldest daughter, who is protective of the younger siblings. And when incidents would happen and escalate, she ensured that they got to safety as much as she could. And another child is the distractor, for instance, or the um, tries to distract dad from mom.
1: And to defuse
0: the violence is another example of a role, for instance, that we've seen. And I think that there are so many different roles. And it's important to understand that because while they're so functional and make so much sense when you're living with violence, with abuse, often after, when the violence has ended and a family is trying to recover and heal and move on, those roles can really get in the way, as it did in this particular family.
1: Certainly, because the patterns have been set, and they get repeated, and I would imagine repeated in future adult relationships and so we're finding in our research too that the sibling relationships that are described during and in the aftermath of the violence are either a very have very distant quality. they're detached from each other or quite hostile and upset and almost reenacting the violence, the the fighting that they they witnessed.
0: And I think that I'd just like to start, Ramona, by saying so often, and I think that we've made some progress in talking about trauma-informed, understanding that better, understanding it across different developmental stages, but I think we're still just emerging in our understanding and practice
1: of how we integrate trauma-informed and resilience-informed. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. This is the crux of our work. We know a lot about trauma. We've had decades now of trauma treatment, trauma-informed, and this other piece of resilience that really needs to be taken into account is 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 developing as you say emerging and i really think we need to be thinking of it as both are necessary
0: neither is sufficient when children have lived with intimate partner violence and experience trauma. And that is really an encouraging, and that's why I think initiatives like Make Resilience Matter are so important, because you are bringing those two really important frameworks together, um, not separating them, looking at them as needing to coexist. And I think in this case, if we go back to the three girls and their mother, it just really stands out. I mentioned, Ramona, that we always ask about, so what's salient? What's the situation, the incident that you think of just before you fall
1: asleep and you don't want to think about or comes in during the day? Oh, I love that example. That really is, gets to the nub of the, the, you know, the, the angst And what needs to be resolved. But then when we move
0: into the resilience, then we add to that. Once we find out what that is from our trauma-informed portion of the assessment, the dovetailing with the resilience-informed is to say, and how, what was that like for you? And and describe for me how how did you... um, cope with that? Or uh, what did that mean for you? And we learned so much. I want to go back to the middle daughter who was doing well mm-hmm, in school. Mm-hmm. And her mother had described an incident where the her ex, the children's father, stepfather, had pushed her out of a moving van. And she knew the middle child, I'm going to refer to her as Chris, was present in the van. And she just knew that would be the most salient. And when we talked, when I talked with Chris, Chris thought for a moment and she said, we were all sitting at the supper table. And everything was going along fine. And All of a sudden, my dad just punched my mom in the nose, and it was bleeding, and she stopped, and and I paused, and I said, and that was upsetting, and she almost, it was like I was no longer there, and she said, I didn't see it coming, I didn't know it was going to happen, and what really came out through more discussion was her Coping and her sense of agency in this situation that she couldn't control was being able to predict when something bad was going to happen, Mm. when dad was going to hurt mom or her sister, the oldest sister, and she would then feel that she could. Take steps to be safer. And that one bothered her. It was the one that crept back in because she didn't see it coming. And she had a lot of confidence and felt more empowered because of this ability to predict. Right. And that was um, the situation. I, I want to give you another example in terms of asking for a situation. We were working with her younger sister and she described the following, and it, and it just stays with me always, Ramona. With her and her age, I asked her if she would draw me a picture of what she does when the fighting happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she tells this story, and she draws, she draws her bedroom. And then she describes herself going into the bedroom and ripping little pieces of paper. And on these little pieces of paper, she writes notes. Help. And then she crunches it up on another note, get me out, crunches it up. And then she hides these notes in her bedroom. And when I talked with her longer, she hides them because it would be bad news if Dad found them. But also, she was just young enough that she had hope that somebody was going to find them. She still believed in um, the tooth fairy and superheroes. And she thought if somebody found them, they'd stop the violence and they would rescue her and her sisters and her mom. So she had an escape fantasy, and she also took action. Instead of feeling there was nothing she could do, that she had no personal agency, she was active. She took action, and she had hope that it would make a difference. We wouldn't have known about those strengths, those natural coping strategies that both young women were employing if we hadn't spent the time Talking with them and trying to understand how they made sense of the experience, of the violence that was happening, but also what they did when it was happening.
1: I am really struck by um, this little girl's creativity, how she used this way to escape and find ways to escape. And also your take on it, because it could have been seen that she was a weird little kid doing weird things, tearing up paper, writing notes, crumpling them up. And so I'm also struck by how this resilience-informed lens has us move away from pathologizing behaviors to really seeing them as opportunities for, for growth, for coping, for getting out of that situation, whether it's internally through her mind and kind of this, this activity, or maybe later in life to actually exit and move on to, to good things. Linda, now that you've brought resilience very clearly back into the picture with this case, what else can you say about how we can recognize resilience, how we can use the building blocks that maybe are presented, especially in this very rich case that that you've been talking about? One of the things that
0: I look for are knowing the, the pathways to resilience, look for what exists that we could further build. So, for instance, in this case... We had a very supportive mother who cares very much. She went through and, and suffered a lot of physical and emotional devastation, quite frankly, from the violence. And she was in a recovery period. But we knew that in terms of that protective Relationship, a primary relationship that's nurturing, these young women had that. But then that became very puzzling in some ways because we weren't seeing the benefits or the utilization, if I can put it that way, the activation of that relationship in the way we would have thought. And I began to really wonder what was going on, and there were a couple things that came out. One day when I was with the youngest daughter, she said, can I tell you a secret? And I said, well, you can tell me a secret, but if it's something that hurts somebody, I might have to tell somebody else, or if I think somebody's going to be hurt. And she said, okay. And she started to whisper, and what she told me was in the final culminating violent incident that led to the separation from father, on Benoan to her mom or her older sisters, dad, his little princess, had taken her on his knee and told her that he loved her, would always love her, but that he was going to kill her mother and her two sisters. And she had been carrying that secret and imagine yourself as the littlest daughter she feels she's clinging to her mother and her sisters remember i said she was so yes. clingy because yes. something might happen to them or hurt them but she can't talk about it and then as we explored further we realized that the oldest daughter the the competency that she identified, because we looked for competencies, the one she identified was as the caretaker. Mom was so hurt, and her parenting potential was compromised because of the violence, so she took over as junior mom. But mom was healing and recovering, and mom was reclaiming, rightly so, her role. But the oldest daughter felt absolutely displaced and actually felt the one thing that gave her worthiness had yep. been taken away. Yep. And what we began to see was that while there was all the potential for relationships between the siblings and with mother to make uh, be a true protector and a pathway to resilience, that they were using silence as a protector— Mom didn't want to have the girls relive. She felt she couldn't and wasn't sure how to talk about what they experienced. The oldest daughter was just angry at mom for taking over her role. And so nobody was communicating, but they were all capable. And the positive adult role person, mom, was just there but needed support in helping them to share their narrative to find a narrative that would work for all of them and to set the stage so that the benefit of a protective adult could really take place. So that would be an example. Also because of the violence and the isolation that the abusive um, individual had created in the home. These young women, and they relocated to another city, they had no community involvement. They weren't involved in any youth programs, in groups. They went to school, they came home to the transition housing, and they were with each other. And so in terms of looking for sport activities, to build on strengths, and to be a release um, for them and to help them develop stronger peer relationships. None of that was in place, but they were places, interventions that we could go with to help build resilience.
1: That I, I have two really interesting takeaway messages from what you've said that, uh, that makes so much sense that, yes, kids can have natural sources of resilience that they show us that, uh, they, um, that we can identify. But we can't take it for granted that they'll just do it on their own. They really need to have that fostering, that promotion. We cannot assume that that pathway will just be, as you said, that pathway can't be just g- gone down without support and help without nurturing. And so that's the one really important takeaway message that I have from what you've said. But also, it's not just about the internal strengths um, or even the relational strengths, but the outside resources, the connection to community, the connection to being able to release through, through sports or music as a lifeline or reading, libraries, all those things, unfortunately, they're being scaled back. We really need to recognize the importance of keeping those in place as providing these pathways to resilience. And so this has all made me think about the Make Resilience Matter project and how we're really working hard to define resilience. And we spend a lot of time really looking at this concept and this issue. And what we've come up with is, and I I really want to hear your thoughts about this, that resilience is not innate. One doesn't have it or not have it. And it can be fostered. And we've actually put together uh, a, a working definition that we're moving closer and closer to figuring out if this is kind of it, that resilience is a process of navigating through adversity using internal and external resources. And what this means is resilience happens through a combination of the child's qualities, relationships, and the context or community surrounding that child. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's an excellent definition because right in the definition, it creates
0: the blueprint for where we need to go in terms of intervention. And I also think that while that definition works and is important in terms of an understanding of resilience for all children and youth, all people for that matter, I think it's particularly apt for the the context of domestic violence. Because when we stop and think about children living with domestic violence, then we know that, yes, they have strengths, which are the building blocks of the very pathways to resilience, but often they don't recognize those strengths. They may be experiencing emotional abuse in the home as well. Mm-hmm. They're experiencing fear all the kinds of things that can compromise what would have happened in a family to help children be aware of their strengths and Mm -hmm. to build on them. So I think that piece is really important. So the types of relationships in the community, the activities, sports, music, all of those really good, protective, resilience-building activities, then children may
1: not have the opportunity
0: because of the um, abuse that's occurring in their home.
1: Linda, that feedback has been really great on the definition of resilience and the whole concept. It's it's really helping to crystallize that this definition we've been striving for is we want it to be particularly apt to the context of domestic violence. So this has really helped to uh, further crystallize uh, for myself and my team how we want to think about this concept. So I'm going to move it now to ending up on a few more grand tour questions, which are what else needs to change? And looking ahead, how else can we help professionals promote resilience? What are your thoughts? Well, I think one of the key things is
0: that we first of all have to recognize that there are pockets of amazing trauma-informed, resilient, informed practice happening, and children are benefiting from those. I think the challenge is, and where we have to go next, is to shine a spotlight on those pockets of practice, and that we have to move it from pockets to a system that is trauma-informed and resilience-informed. And right now, that system is not in place we talk about it more we recognize the importance but we have not got there
1: linda i couldn't agree with you more about these you know pockets of excellent work that's being done in both trauma and resilience informed work i see it all the time it really resonates with me i hadn't thought about it that way And now that I'm seeing it that way and hearing what you're saying, how do we get to the next step? Ramona, I think that we have to
0: bring about and create a tipping point, if I can use that overused expression, a cultural change. And what I mean is we have to shift our framework. So right now, the whole system is geared on who needs the service, who's got the most severe troubles, problems, and let's put our resources there. And what that does is... It's counter to an approach that is recognizing the building blocks for resilience and stopping the work from happening or resourcing the the services that would help build, create the pathways with those building blocks for children. So I think it's a fundamental paradigm shift. And I don't think until we succeed in that that we're going to move beyond pockets. And the approach that I don't think would be helpful is to try to just one by one increase the number of pockets. I'd like to see that cultural paradigm shift occur.
1: Linda Baker, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your wisdom, your insights. I'm sure our audience is going to benefit tremendously by your work and what you've learned from it and how you've applied the concepts of resilience. Thank
0: you, Ramona. It's been a pleasure. And I will be watching and following Make Resilience Matter.
1: Thank you to everyone for listening to today's podcast. I'm Ramona Laggia, lead investigator of Make Resilience Matter. That's Make Resilience, R E S I L I E N C E, matter.ca.